You're chasing 100 years of history. You're chasing the Champions League. Every time Matt Turner plays in goal for Arsenal, they have to mention Fairfield and the New England Revolution. And now you're part of the conversation. This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by college soccer coaches Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. Here they are, Ralph and Ray. All right, Ray, are you ready? We're going to talk Taylor Twelman in a few minutes here, but Ray, let's start with this. So many athletes in many different sports build their careers abroad. How do we get better at helping them build them here? Yeah, I I, I think Don Garber and the league, MLS has done a fantastic job of creating an environment for our guys to play after high school or in some cases after college. Full-time training, 11 months, academies now. But I think still, I think it's a good opportunity when all young players can go to Europe or South America, get into a professional environment, get into a country where the only sport or the major sport is soccer, get into a country where they've got to learn to stand on their own two feet. The mother and father, in most cases, are not there to support them anymore. And they learn how to be a pro at the age of 18, 19, 20. If you look at you know a big part of our national team right now, those are all young men playing in Europe. Uh, you know, we have MLS players on there, but the, the key guys are playing in Europe. So I think I think there's a balance. I think the league in America can help keep the top young men home and develop them. But I think it's a better path to go to Europe, more competition. Certainly the fact that you're the American going over there, I'm sure still to this day doesn't sit well. They think it's a typical American coming over. So I, I think we have two paths that can develop our players, both both in America, in the MLS, and in, in a small level to the, in the USL, and certainly in Europe, in the full-time club environment. Well, I think you mentioned something there, Ray, that's very important for our listeners, uh, that word pathway. We, we really need a pathway for our kids, as you know, as a college coach. That was the pathway when the league started in 96, and that was a very important place for us to find good, talented young players coming from the college. And I still believe that that is a, a pathway as well. But I think once the league has grown and now we're into the 27th year and with the MLS Next Academy programs that are started and with U.S. Soccer Development Academy programs, as you mentioned, all these young players that are presently uh, young players who were either at the IMG under 17 national residency program. I mean, that started really in, in the late 90s with players like Landon Donovan, Demarcus Beasley, uh, Anuchi Oweyu. But I mean, now when I see the MLS next and I see these kids playing and I see the different academies and then going to Europe and seeing the academies over there, this is definitely the, the best way that a, a young player from 14 to 16 is in a pro academy environment. And by the time he's 17 to 20, he's got to be with, if he can, be in a pro environment. I still think college soccer is, is a good vehicle, a good way as well. 
But um, looking at our present team that just qualified for the uh, the World Cup in Qatar, uh, a lot of these young guys all played for the past under-20 teams under the direction of uh, Tab Ramos. And I think these guys are showing themselves ready to play at a high level of international soccer. Just like, you know, when you look at the two players or the three players right now that were the leading scorers in the NBA playoffs, they're all foreigners, Dantic, uh, Giannis, and Djokovic. I mean, they are all foreign players who've come to our league, the NBA, which is the best league in the world, and everybody wants to play in the best leagues to test their their talent skills. And obviously the, the bonus of that is that you're, you're totally compensated very well for that as well. Okay, Ralph, knowing Taylor's background, obviously he was a fantastic soccer player, great basketball player, and a very, very good baseball player. I think you might have been drafted. What do you think is beneficial about playing multiple sports? Did you play any other sports? We started soccer when you were a kid, and how did you wind up with just playing soccer at the end? That's a good question, and I get asked that question a lot by parents that my son just focus or my daughter only on soccer. Uh, my answer to that always is let them play the sports that they love, that they gravitate when they're young, especially between those ages of eight and, you know, 14. Uh, let them find the sport that they really are passionate about. I, I played baseball back at Brentwood, Long Island. I played uh, basketball and I played obviously soccer. And then uh, after ninth grade, I kind of gave up baseball because I knew that I wasn't that ex- good or excelling in it at I wanted to focus just more on basketball and soccer. And then I was fortunate enough to do both in college as well. But uh, soccer was my sport. Once I went to college, I played all four years where basketball, I only played a freshman squad. And then I played one year in uh, as a junior. But I think, you know, many sports have same principles, many sports, the, the, the muscles that you use, the conditioning that you use, obviously you still need to be specific fitness for those sports. But I I think young people, you hear it all the time. Sometimes by the time they're 15, 17, all the stuff that I've been reading on why kids leave the sport of soccer is that they're burnt out. They've played all their lives from five on. I've had some kids even at my college uh, teams and after a year of college soccer say, hey, coach, you know what? It's not there anymore. The passion's not there anymore to play. I think you see that more on a Division three level than you do on a Division one level. I, I think you got to let kids find their way and encourage them, and, uh, and then whatever they do, uh, support them. All right, let's get to our interview with Taylor. Taylor played professionally from 1999 to 2010. He's best known for a seven-year stint with the MLS New England Revolution. He's a five-time MLS All-Star and was the MVP in 2005. In 2009, he became the youngest player in our league to score 100 goals and retired the following year due to concussion symptoms. Today, he leads the Think Taylor Foundation, which educates our youth about concussions and keeping our athletes safe. He's also the lead analyst for ESPN's MLS coverage and is a key anchor now on SportsCenter. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Taylor Twelman. All right, so Taylor Twelman, first off, thank you very much for joining us. We know how busy you are, and we appreciate you taking the time. Let's go back to 1998, when you kind of broke Ray Reed's heart by picking Maryland <laughs> over UConn. 
I had to bring that up. I I still wake up nights dreaming of you in a UConn hat. Um, but you were obviously you're a gifted athlete in many sports. Got drafted by the Kansas City Royals, but you decided to go to Maryland and play college soccer. Can you kind of give us a little insight into that? Not the choice to go to Maryland, but why soccer over baseball? Ray, isn't it amazing how life comes full circle? Ralph, it, it, you just picture Ray Reed and his 17 Southern Connecticut University championship rings on, and he's walking into the house in St. Louis, Missouri, trying to sell me on uh, UConn. <laughs> um, it's funny, Ray. We, we still talk about it as a family. It, recruiting was such an interesting experience for me. Um, I grew up in a family, Ray knows this, Ralph, uh, we had, I think it was nine professional athletes. So if I would have said I was going to be a fireman, a teacher, or an accountant, everyone at the Thanksgiving Day table would have looked at me and said, what? No, you're not. So I don't say that to brag. I say that because it still was a humble family. I grew up in a family where you had pictures of your grandfather winning the World Series with Joe DiMaggio and the Yankees. You had your father slide tackling Pele and you had your uncle playing golf with Tiger Woods on the PJ tour. So it never was something where we often talked about, we thought it was normal. And I know that's going to sound so freaking crazy to people, but it, we, it just was in my family. You're going to play and you're going to play at the highest level and you're going to do it with a smile on your face and you're going to do it with humility. The reason why I say humility is Ray, we did not know as a family what was coming July 1st, 1998. Sasha and you, Sasha and me were two guys to give you an idea of it. <laughs> yeah, like you just, you didn't know. Like the fact that it was 12.01 in the morning and we had 10 voicemails. That's right. That's right. Like, and then my dad had to turn the phone off so the brother and sister and everyone could sleep. So it was a real interesting process. The nutshell of this was I was recruited by a lot of schools just for baseball. And I was recruited by a lot of schools just for soccer. But there was a good amount of schools that recruited me for baseball. Ray, you were one of those. And so at that time, Ziggy Schmidt at UCLA, Clive Charles at University of Portland, all telling me it's the worst mistake of your life. You're never going to make it if you think you're going to play baseball. I had University of Miami coach. Uh, I had Florida State coach. I had Arizona State baseball coaches tell me, why would you play soccer? No one cares about soccer. And so immediately when you heard that, I would have gone to UCLA no matter what if Ziggy said I could play baseball. The baseball coach at UCLA said I could come, but I couldn't play soccer. My uncle, who was on the PGA Tour, went to UCLA. My entire house was UCLA propaganda. So I would have looked at UCLA hardcore seriously but neither coach wanted to share it, right? So it eliminated them, and it eliminated a lot of the baseball. So honestly, it was my senior year of baseball. It was my first year that I played baseball the entire year with no interruption of the U-17 national team, the U-17 World Cup. And, guys, I, I played well. I hit 517. I made one error, and I think, in like 70-some-odd games. It was an odd year. And so the Cardinals, Royals, and Mets all said, do an individual workout. Here's the offer. And this is where I made the decision, right? And Ralph, you'll appreciate this. You're sitting down. I did an individual workout for two hours for all three teams and scouts that were there. Hal McRae sent his third base coach there from the Royals. And right there with the head scout, 
They made me an offer. I looked at my dad and I looked at the head scout and, and Hal McCray's third base coach. And I said, do I have to give up soccer? And they both smirked and they said, yeah, you're going to be pro and you're going to go to rookie ball in about four or five days. And I right there, I said, now nah, I'm going to try soccer at Maryland. I went to Maryland on a baseball full ride. I didn't go for soccer. I never stepped foot on a baseball field at Maryland. And because of what I did soccer-wise freshman year that turned into Ziggy bringing me back in, who told me I was never going to be called in if I play <laughs> baseball or whatever, he took me to the under-20 World Cup. I won the bronze boot. I turned pro. I never played baseball. I think about it to this day because it was in my blood 100% with my grandfather winning you know, a couple World Series and be with the Yankees anyway. So long story short, I don't know why I chose soccer. But that day in Baldwin, Missouri, after a workout where I was subtly asked and directly asked, you're going to quit soccer right now. I think it was that day, Ray and Ralph, that I said, you know what? I can't give up on soccer. And ironically, it was that day that I actually said no to baseball. You talked about your father and your uncle. Wasn't your mom a big-time athlete, if I remember correctly? Yeah, but there was no Title IX, right? So my oh, she mom was, was, she was a big-time athlete, right? Yeah. She was a fantastic softball player. So the genetics – and that's why I bring it up so people don't think it's like it, – it, it's this arrogant way of thinking. It's literally a study of genetics. You had a father's side that had three pro soccer players and a pro baseball player, and you had a mom's side that had a pro baseball player and a professional golfer. So nomadically – and a mom that if there was Title IX then, my mom would have been a full right. My sister went on a full ride and played Division One soccer for four years. So it was just innately in our blood. We didn't really have a decision to make. We played also because we loved it. And Ray knows that, Ralph, from being in my family's house. We didn't talk about it on some level. We just it, – it was a normal part of our life. I ate three meals a day. My mom cooked. I was taught how to be a pro athlete without being told this is what you do. You eat before the game. You eat after the game. All the little things that – you know, a lot of listeners didn't learn until you get older, you get into the environment. I just was in that and we enjoyed it. We did it with a smile on our face and, and make no mistake about it. If I was an asshole on the field, my father let me know. If I didn't play and end a game with respect to the opponent, my mom 100% let me know. So there were certain rules in the house where if you ever thought you were bigger than the game, if you ever thought you were bigger than the sport or your teammates, Make no mistake about it. Tim and Mucci were 100% off your backside, literally and figuratively. You played in Europe, MLS MVP, led the league in goals, best 11, top broadcaster, played for the national team. You're an older guy now. Where today, where does college soccer fit in in trying to help, I'll use the word MLS guys cringe, develop guys, that can go on and be pros. Yeah, I, I have a real issue with the way some uh, the way the sport is going on some levels, if not all levels. This the sport of soccer around the world is inclusive, not exclusive. And when the reason why I say that is a large part of soccer and quite honestly, youth sports in our country, and this is all of them, but you can get away with all of them when you're the number one league and you're the number one sport in the world. 
baseball, basketball, football, because we're the only country that really plays it, American football, gridiron football for those listening. And on some level, hockey. I get there's Eastern European hockey and Russian hockey that's up there, but it's not at the level of the NHL. You can do that and be excluded. You can create your own rules. Soccer, you're not. Soccer's the number one sport in the world. And yet this country at times treats it like the other sports where it becomes exclusive, not inclusive. College soccer has a huge ability in this country to stay on the course in player development because the infrastructure is there. There's pressure when you play with your school, going to class classes the next day when you miss a penalty kick or you give up a shitty goal. There's pressure there. I love that about player development and human development. I love the fact that you're representing a student body. There's something about that versus playing for a club team. The problem with college soccer, Ray and Ralph, is this, is that the NCAA has treated it the same way they treated my dad in the 70s and his brothers at SIU Edwardsville. It's never evolved. You get 134 days in what, three months? Maybe three and a half if you include preseason? Student athlete welfare is at risk because you're asking students to play Wednesday, Saturday, Thursday, Sunday. If there's any kind of concussion, you are absolutely jeopardizing that student athlete's ability to properly assess that. Secondly, I know this is going to hit you guys right on the head with this, no pun intended, but there's good coaches in college soccer. Yet, Ray, you've done this. You've seen it. Are you allowed to train during season? No, it's about survival because you got to play 20 games in the matter of two and a half, three months. It's completely irresponsible. It's completely ridiculous about the sport. And so the quality goes down because you're not properly developing. If they expanded this season, the infrastructure is there for people to develop. If you guys read Dust Reboot, fantastic book about the revolution of German football. In the DFB, what's the first thing written on the whiteboard? We want smart players. When we talk about player development in soccer, for some reason, for some reason, we're like, well, school gets in the way. What are you talking about? School gets in the way. School training for soccer is three hours a day. Why can't we do school as well? So this conversation about player development never includes education, which is remarkable to me because I would love to be on a field with 10 other guys that are smart. And so college is there. For the the blueprint is there, the infrastructure is there, but until the NCAA gets their heads out of the sand and recognizes the opportunity there, Ralph and Ray, I've got a very bad feeling that if we do this podcast five, 10 years from now, college soccer is going to be at 10% of what it was when you guys were involved and even when I was involved. And it doesn't need to be that way because the bigger the pond of player, the better opportunity there is for the United States men's national team to win a World Cup. And right now, I feel like this is another topic, but the men's college game is more international than American because of just they're just there's just too much shit in the way of college soccer actually recognizing the potential it has. All right. So your former co- your college coach, Sasha Sarafti, has done a fantastic job getting this 21st century model, which long story short for our listeners is trying to stretch the uh, college season for the men and women over two semesters, Uh, less missed class time, less travel, more recovery, very minimal one or two weeks where you play midweek. 
Taylor, you know the BS that goes on. Do you think it will pass or will it just pass maybe with the power five leagues? What do you think is going to happen from what Sash tells you, what you hear and your experience? I, I think what's important is that there's a there there's a discrepancy right now that the Division One women don't necessarily want to right. do this. They do not want it. They do and, not. Want and, it. and so that's going to be very tricky. How you try to you know with, with uh, gender equality right now being a huge topic of conversation and rightfully so. I'm a little surprised the women don't want to do it. I know from my background and from my foundation. Concussions is a huge part of the women's game in college soccer. So why they don't want to improve that, that's not for me to answer. But I think that's going to make this difficult to pass because I think a lot of ADs and the decision makers are going to use that and say, well, wait a minute, if you're both not in line, why don't you do it? I have a feeling that the Power Five have a higher likelihood of doing it versus everybody. But I think, Ray, people that are making the decisions and voting on it I don't think they've done their full homework. I don't think they've done the research. You know, the head coach, Carlos, I, I never say his last name. Samoano from Chapel Hill. Yep. And he, using the COVID season as real tangible evidence of cost and what it is, they actually spent less. So, Ray, honestly, I think if people did their homework and women actually joined it, I think it's a no-brainer. I just don't know. I feel like there's too many mixed messages going on right now that I'm a little bit more reserved to say it's going to happen. I just I, – I got both both fingers crossed. I hope it does. Look, Sasha's put probably 10 years into this. Absolutely. And he's killed himself. He's killed – give the guy credit. He's killed himself doing it. I don't know the athletic directors want it. And, and there's certain ones that want it. But, you know, does the Ivy League want it? The Patriot League want it? But – they did a survey with the student athletes, and it was unbelievably one sided. The male student athletes, they want it. Look, I, I think the female student athletes may want it. I think it's some of the female coaches that don't want it. Ray, you just hit the nail on the head, my man. I think if you surveyed the women, absolutely they would. Secondly, most importantly, and this is a topic of conversation in the sport in general in this country, you got to have your most important games in the spring. You got to have your championship games in the spring. Well, I, I said this when we're at UConn you play a big knockout game in May, you get 5,000 people. We played early December in the snow. We might get 5,000, but the field's unplayable. Not to mention college football is king at that moment. NFL is king at that moment. So why are you playing the game then? Look at softball. Look at lacrosse. Men and women's the championships in May around tournaments. Let me turn it over to Ralph before I get voted off the island. Sorry, Taylor. <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, both of you guys are much younger than me, so I'm, I'm going to take you back in time because when Taylor mentioned uh, – SIU Edwardsville, it brings shivers to my brain because 1972, we lost to them in the NCAA final at SIU Edwardsville at Oneonta State. So now I'm playing in the 70s against some of the people that he knows very well from that St. Louis heritage of great soccer. They own college soccer in that point in time, SLU, you know, SLU and, and SIU Edwardsville. But you know, I went into coaching because I wasn't good enough to play in the NASL because the NASL wasn't really looking for American players. So here's the thing that is interesting to hear. As a young coach in the 80s, I'm listening to Mr. Twelman talk, and I swear it's like deja vu when I went to the National Coaches Convention and proposed we should move soccer from the fall to a spring sport. And right away, Mr. Jerry Yeagley, Mr. John Rennie, and Mr. Joe Maroney killed me because they said 
oh, you California guys can play all year round. How are we going to prepare our teams in January, February and get ready to start the season? And I, I countered it by saying, well, gentlemen, two things that I think would really help our game. I've looked at spring sports. They seem to have a longer window of time than than the fall sports. Yes, they do. And then basketball, let's not talk about that. That's the minor league of the NBA, so they get to do whatever they want from October to, to March. But here's the point. You guys touched upon it. The better weather is then. Your NCAA and your conference tournaments are going to be in the spring, and then your championships are going to be almost the beginning of summer, just like the World Series uh, for baseball and the College World Series for the softball. So the point that I just think being now an MLS coach as I move on when the league starts, I value the college. I think the college has developed players that have been fantastic. I'm talking to one right here, and many of the guys that played at many of the schools, UConn, UCLA, Maryland, have all strived and arrived in our league and, 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 and served the league well. So there's a fit there, and I, I agree with everything that's being said. And now I, I come out of the MLS after 10 years, and now I, I took this job at this Division three school at University of Redlands, which is a throwback to my guys are soccer junkies. They love the game. They love to play the game. They're not on athletic scholarships. And clearly, my guys would love to play all year round, whether it's fall and spring, and as, as Sasha has proposed. So it serves the game well. But I think you both touched upon something that just is so important. Athletic directors, NC2A, everybody coming together for one simple thing, the wellness of the student athlete. And that's it in a nutshell. So I appreciate this conversation and I appreciate what, what how you addressed it, Taylor. And I always enjoy when you uh, – get very animated on that <laughs> i get animated over my coffee if it's not done well so honestly, there you go well you and ray reed are cut out of that same mold because uh he gets animated about other things but we won't touch upon that but here's something that is a concern and and i'd like to hear what you think about this taylor is that youth soccer is a year-round sport now yeah and many parents think their kids need to focus on soccer only to be successful that wasn't your path but what no. do you think now does it make sense to stick with one sport or be a more well-rounded guy? Because I played basketball and soccer in college, and I thought it served me tremendously well to be a two-sport athlete. I don't think the answer is black and white. I'm going to start it there, and then we'll go around it. I don't think it's a black and white answer. And too often parents are looking for the black and white answer, and it's not. Because your child could be that special one, or your child could be the mediocre one. And maybe – Playing one sport gives that child, he or she, the best opportunity to maximize that. But here's my issue right now. And Ray saw me as a 17-year-old. The animated person you see now was the same back then. I haven't changed. I think a big reason why I have personality, why I have, as we like to say, a little piss and vinegar, is I grew up with different demographics of people. I wasn't playing with the same people. My basketball group was 100% inner city. My baseball group were farm boys and non-soccer people. And my soccer people were soccer people. And then I kicked for the football team. And then I played golf at a youth level. And that was at a different. So my parents did a fantastic job. And one of the things that I will always be thankful for 
Ralph, is that they ex they exposed me to a lot. And I saw that. And so how do I tell a 10, 11, 12, or 13-year-old, this is your sport. And this is the only thing you're going to do. Because someone tried to do that to me. Tommy Howe, Scott Gallagher. I wasn't listed on their alumni because I told them, and my dad did at age 12, he ain't playing soccer for 12 months. I can't tell my son, who's a really good point guard, we all know that stopped once I stopped growing. And, you know, <laughs> Larry Hughes dropped 38 on me in like eight minute quarters of basketball. And I remember going home going, Dad, I think I got to quit basketball. I don't think I can go play for Michigan and beat Jalen Rose. Anyways, <laughs> um, that's a great story in itself. But my, my dad couldn't have told me at 10, 11, 12, or 13, you got to pick soccer or baseball. Now, you guys would probably agree with me. Most kids, most, I'd say around 14 or 15, you got to have an idea. You got to have an idea. But we're telling 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds in this country – you can only play baseball because, by the way, now all of a sudden I found out baseball's nine to ten months at the highest level of youth in our country. Yet, what, what are you talking about? You're going to play basketball. How do you know? You haven't grown yet. You haven't matured. How do you know what you are? I was a hell of a basketball player, guys. I was. And everyone was like, oh, no, I played at the highest level sophomore year of high school AAU. And then I played Larry Hughes, as I just told you. And he went to the NBA straight out of college after, and I was like, oh my God, there's no way I can reach that level. <laughs> but I didn't know that until I was 17. So, Ralph, this is a gray answer. It's not a black and white. And I think for the development of athletes, they're better off being exposed to a lot as a kid and allow he or she to find their niche. And then as you hit the seventh, eighth, freshman year of high schools, more often than not, the kid's going to tell you. The kid's going to tell you what he or she wants to do. And then there's fulfillment. Then there's happiness, which is what this whole freaking thing is supposed to be about at times. I think youth sports has lost their way, Ralph. I really do, because I think that it has become a business and not serving the purpose of developing athletes and people. And I think if you're telling a 10, 11, 12-year-old, I think you're doing that kid an injustice by telling he or she what sport they can play and which one only being one. I just think it's too young. I tell Ralph and I are from the same town, Brentwood, Long Island, very diverse town. And I couldn't agree with you more. I, I learned more about competing with soccer, getting my ass kicked on yes. the basketball court in Brentwood by guys that could jump through the building. But I, I loved hoops. Right, right. To your but to your point though, but to your point though, that's what soccer's missing. Listen, Germ Germany at the 2018 World Cup, this is all I'm hearing from Bundesliga scouts and officials. They had no personality. There was nothing to that team. Technically, they were fantastic. They dominated World Cup qualifying. There was none of the German nuance. And what is the German nuance as you two know better than anyone? We are going to win under any circumstance. We're going to beat your ass. That team didn't have it. And all I'm hearing is there's no personality within the groups anymore. There's no Michael Bollocks. The Michael Bollocks of the world that grew up in East Germany, they may have not have developed the right way until they got older, but they kicked the living shit out of you. We are missing, you guys know this with you soccer, the Shaw Reed Josephs of the world, who I loved from St. John's and from New York, who showed up at the Revs. He was as unorthodox as it came. I would have picked him above anyone because I knew looking in his eye, 
He was going to do anything he would to win the game. Steve Nichol with the Revolution did this better than anyone in his time, Ralph. And I think you would agree. We were an unorthodox team. But you knew, shit, we don't really want to play them. Because they're probably going to do anything they can to win. It may be ugly. It may be direct. It may be... The intra- it didn't matter. We were we he picked personalities. I talked to a lot of these young players, Ray and Ralph. It's like they're uh here. Good story for you, real quick. You guys will appreciate it. Non-soccer. It's 2009. And I'm not gonna name the names, but we draft two college kids, one from an ACC school, Duke University, and another one from IU, both highly regarded. And we draft them into the reps. My nickname was Stifler, okay? <laughs> there is a reason why it was Stifler. Oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> and it's not because my mom was hot. or hey, she hot. Cut this it out. to do with Stifler's mom, although, you know, whatever, whatever. But the truth of the matter is this, is that initiation or being difficult in the locker room was part of it. And the reason why it was part of it for me, it's how I experienced life in Germany. But more so, Ray and Ralph, it was this. You learn a lot about a person in that environment. And I wanted to know at all times whether or not when shit hit the fan, can I count on you? So I was a difficult teammate. I was a difficult one that Jeff Lorenowitz, Michael Parkhurst, Andy Dorman, all three of them kind of survived it. And all three would then tell me later, I fucking hated you, Taylor. Hated you. You made my life miserable the first year. I said, yeah, but guess what I learned? When the game came to, when it, when it was 88th minute and you guys are being subbed in as rookies or you're starting as a rookie, I knew I could count on you. Anyways, we're at a bar. <laughs> and this is when I knew I was in trouble. I asked these two guys, there's a group of girls at the end of the bar that are having fun. They're on and they're having, get them to come over and talk to us. One of them said, do they have Facebook? (laughs) And the other one said, I have no idea what I would say to him. And the reason why I'm using this story is this. That's when I knew this changed. This changed. Because my generation and the older generation, you didn't have any of that. Remember calling the house when you wanted to date a girl and, and the older brother answered or the dad answered and you were sweating bullets and you were nervous? That generation that came in in 2009, all of a sudden, everything was on the phone. Everything was texting. And so the improvisation, it was the it was the ability to adjust. I was like, oh, so now the reason why I bring this up is you not, the messaging has to change. How you communicate with each other has to change. And that was the beginning of me recognizing, well, how do you define an on-the-field personality? How can you find that? And that's where I think some things are lost. And Ralph, I use that as a, as a story because you've got to adjust with different demographics and different people in diverse situations. And I think if you're playing a single sport at an early age right away, you're pigeonholing yourself into the same people, the same environment, the same world at a young age when you may not want to fit in that. No, that's, that's a great answer. And, and uh, you know, just to really quickly share a quick story there, I tried to play three sports. Ninth grade, when I saw that I was batting ninth in the lineup, I knew it was time to step out of baseball. But uh, 
you know, we're saying that it's better to play more games for kids and play longer period of time. But that fine line, again, you know, U.S. soccer is trying to implement, you know, recovery time, blah, blah, blah. But I, I just wanted to finish that question with you as far as, you know, I see a lot of times in the March Madness, hey, this guy played uh, soccer. when, uh, And then later on somewhere, he left our sport and and all of the above. But I, I, I just really find it very interesting that I wish there were more guys that could get out there and speak on this forum that you're, you're, you're touching upon for the youth soccer people in America, because I, I think it's, it's really important because you made reference to Das Boot, the book about Germany, uh, when they had some failure, not getting out of the group. I, I haven't seen a Das Boot when we failed to make Russia <laughs> no. for the USA. No, the, the, the Das Reboot was very interesting because for Germans, they had to go against their nature. They had sure. to go against their DNA and they, but they stayed with the DNA and organizing, sticking to a plan. And by the way, the what do you know? The eight-year plan turned into, or the ten-year plan turned into win, them winning the 2014 World Cup. And now they're all of a sudden having the conversation. We need to get back a little bit to the old stuff where we allowed it. I just Ray and Ralph, you guys have coached so many times. You could give me a, a number of players, but my statement is this: oftentimes, personalities defined on the playground where there's no coaches, there's no strat, there's no uh, infrastructure. There's just, uh, what am I going to do to survive on this court? Basketball changed me. And the reason why it changed me is this, is I was the 5'10 point guard showing up at the playground. And if I was going to make it and stay on that, and that 5v5 team stays on the court and we win, I had to, I had to grow up quickly. I had to earn my pay. I had to earn it. it was, there was no zones. There was no coaches. There was no officials. You got to survive. You got to win. You got to play. You got to roll your sleeves up and earn it. We need to find that. And I think soccer's missing that in this country. I think it's missing it. It's got to be scheduled. It's got to be coaches. You got to be in the car for an hour and a half to find it. I think we're missing it a little bit. I do. So, Taylor, let me let me tie into a little bit of your old school mentality with the conversation you and I had when I called you and asked you to be on the show. And it's a little bit of a conflict of interest for my partner, but 1990 World Cup team. By qualifying, set it for 94, 98, and got the wheels in motion. You had said to me on the phone that you think the years 85 to 2000, soccer in this country, people don't get credit for. You want to expound on that? Do you want to talk about the 90 World Cup team with, with uh, Hawks and Ramos and with Bob Ganser coach and Coach Perez assisted? But I found it ironic you brought that up, and now listen to your talk. You're much more an old school guy for a young guy oh, absolutely. than you are the, the young guys of today. So, I was an old head when I was 18. 1970 to 1985 does not get enough credit in this country. Fact, not opinion. I think MLS, if they were honest and transparent, when they launched the uh, MLS in 1996, they would have done it over and reached in to the NASL crowd and reached into that and used them as the spokesperson for what this sport is. This sport has been around a lot longer than the 94 World Cup. It just has. That generation needs to be reminded of that time and time again, which is why I love poking the bear with Alexi and that crew because the 90 World Cup and the Paul Caligiri goal and Bob Ganser, who's done so much for this game in this country, 
who gave my dad his only cap for the United States. Thank you, Bob. But what Ralph talked about in that NASL era, it was about survival for the Americans. Only three Americans were allowed to be on that roster, game day roster, which is why I will brag about what my dad did more than anything. He is in the top five field players because a lot of goalies were American at that time because they didn't want to spend money on a foreigner coming over. For my father to play over 160, 70 games or something ridiculous in that time, Glenn Myronick, God rest his soul, used to always tell me, he goes, your dad was an SOB. You know why? And I go, why? He goes, because he came from college as a goal scorer. He showed up in Minnesota and they said, if you're going to play, you have to play right back. And he did it. And then he played as a six. What do you think? Guys, you know me. Imagine me playing as a six. But Which, by the way, hold on real quick. Ralph, did you know Ziggy at the MLS Combine? Because MLS was trying to use me as an example because I went overseas and came back. And they said, you can only take $24,000, the minimum, no bonuses, because you didn't take the Project 40 deal. And Ziggy's the reason why I came back. Ziggy and Bob Ganser, the two reasons why I came back to MLS, because they came over with the Wizards in the Galaxy to play 1860 Munich. And they had no idea that I was leading the team in goals on the reserve team. And Ziggy's like, dude, what are you doing here? Come back. We'll make you a discovery player with the Galaxy. And MLS says no. So guess who my combine coach is, Ralph and uh, Ray? Ziggy. So the first combine game, I'm coming back from Germany. Ziggy goes, you're starting it right back. Okay? This is the best part. I look at him. I go, <laughs> he goes, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> you're going to start it right back. So no, everyone looks at you and Nobody says, you. <laughs> he's done. He's shit. He can't play. And I'm like, okay. 20 minutes into the game, I'm playing right wing. I'm like, Ziggy, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm playing up. Anyway. I remember that. I was there. Yeah, it just was amazing. And then the next game, Ziggy goes, I have to play up front because coaches want to see you up front and whatever. The rest is history. But I go, I use that as an example because that's where I came from, my dad. Whatever he had to do to survive. And I think the Ralph talking about NASL in 1972 the generation of American players from 1970 to 1985 does not and still does not get enough credit for what the sport is in this country because the NASL failed. They screwed up. I get that. But the players and the people didn't go anywhere. Now, I think the NASL player, Ray, has a bad taste in their mouth. And I wish MLS in 1996 would have tried to change that they didn't, right? But it is what it is. I just think people, God, man, our, the sport in this country has been around a lot longer than the 94 World Cup. And, and I'm going to use my voice to give them the, the right recognition because the Seattle's, the Portland's, the Vancouver's, that atmosphere, that crowd, that culture has been around a lot longer. St. Louis and what they're going to do in 2023, people have no idea. Soccer's been around a lot longer. Taylor, did I hear this correct? They've sold 60,000 season tickets. Season ticket deposits is 60. Where are they playing? Where the Rams used to play? No. They're they're building a $200 million stadium downtown. How much How much attendance? Well, it holds. 20, 21. And they got 60,000 deposits. Which I love. I love created demand. But St. Louis Cardinals are sweating. Right. St. Louis really? Cardinals are sweating because the crowd's younger and they and Bill DeWitt, the DeWitt family understands with the Cardinals, St. Louis is a soccer town. That's St. Right. Louis right. is a soccer town. So the moment that stadium comes up, lights are on. Oh, boy. Good luck. Go ahead, Ralph. Well, Taylor's dad and, and uh, would understand this because I'm going to say one word and 
Taylor's going to understand him. You may not, Ray. Bronze boot game. Yep. The game between St. Louis and SIU Edwardsville would draw 15 to 20,000. It was a war. In the 70s. And uh, you know, he touched upon, you know, the Portland, Seattle. And, and, and for me, being a Long Island guy, New York, going to the Cosmo games yeah. with my family at Giant Stadium was a big thing. And, um, you know, I, I think of those guys like Ty Keel, Dave Bristick, Larry Holzer, yeah. You know, and, and all those St. Louis players. Ray Vandebeck. Yep. And and I tell you, you know, it's well overdue that uh, there's a franchise now in the MLS to the St. Louis. I've got a young player on my team presently that's from St. Louis, proud kid from St. Louis. And uh, he was bragging about that to me on yesterday's training that, Coach, the demand for tickets – is off the charts. I don't know how I'm going to get in the stadium because and, and Ralph, Ralph. The best part is they will criticize the hell out of that team if they don't play well. Oh yeah, oh. There, there's an idea in St. Louis of how the game should be played, which is unique. It's very unique in this country to have it, and it's throughout the fabric of the city. Which honestly, on one hand, you could count MLS. A lot of it's new, it's energetic, but it's very new to the Atlantas and the Charlottes of the world. Uh-uh, St. Louis opening day. You only get one, you only get one first impression. And and they know that. They know that. Long overdue. I, I think uh, you know, you 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 were a, a young man that uh you know decided hey after college you went to Europe and you mentioned about Munich 1860. Uh we had the chance to play them in the in the, in, in Korea. And obviously that's Lothar Asianda's team. He always roots yes, for Bayern Munich now, but that was his team growing up. And you're and you're you're very involved and you know about it because I hear you on TV all the time. But how can MLS, like a team like St. Louis, keep the best talent in MLS? And because obviously the lure to play in Europe is there for every soccer player in the world. Listen, we all want Major League Soccer to be a top three league in the world. We just do. We want we want to see Kevin De Bruyne play in the United States. However. You're chasing 100 years of history. You're chasing the Champions League. So for me, now putting my business hat on, if I'm going to be at all a part of that pie, a part of that pie is Major League Soccer. I need to develop and sell as many players as I can to the highest level. That's what I need to do. Because Brazil's done it better than anyone in the world. Argentina's done it arguably better than anyone other than Brazil in the world. And yet their leagues thrive. Yet the American way of thinking is every other league in our country is the best league in the world. So can MLS. I firmly believe MLS can, has the real potential to be a top league in the world. I do that. And I don't say anything that I don't believe. I think the only way to do that is I need 50 Tyler Adams coming from Major League Soccer to the Bundesliga and the Premier League. I need 20 Alfonso Davies going from Vancouver Whitecaps to arguably the best left back in the world playing for Bayern Munich. I need as many players coming from this environment using Major League Soccer as a stepping stone to get there. And the reason why I need that is then the conversation can turn and say, well, hold on here. Maybe they don't need to go. Maybe it comes here. So instead of being dismissive about it, why not embrace it and say, you know what? I want a piece of that pie. And every time Matt Turner plays in goal for Arsenal, they have to mention Fairfield, 
Revolution. New England Revolution. That's right. And now you're part of the conversation. And so now the price of the player goes up. The demand for the player goes up because now you got players leaving here, going over there. What Weston McKinney's done from FC Dallas's academy, Tyler Adams from the Red Bulls. Uh, you can go up and down the list. I mean, you know, Christian Pulisic coming from here. He didn't come from MLS, but it doesn't matter. He came from the United States. And so now MLS has recognized the best business decision we can have is developing and selling. And they just sold players over $80 million, the most ever in their history, in one winter transfer window. Right. And that's the way, Ralph, you handle that business-wise, and that's why I think it's a simple answer. Ralphie? Well, I'm glad you touched upon that because um, – uh, this past December, I went to the MLS Next tournament out here in California, and the New York City FC contacted me to train at my school. And I watched the training of the under-15s, and I was blown away with the level, the talent, the quality of coaching by this New York City FC club. And I'm saying we're on the right direction on player development because back when you played, we would have loved to have an academy, but we were just trying to keep the league afloat in the early 2000s. So I hear what you're saying and the player development and uh, is, is definitely what it needs to, to develop. So the end here on this uh, thing here, as you, as you look at it, what was the most difficult thing though, if you could send a message to these guys that go overseas as young players like yourself, what, what was the real challenge going from USA to now the culture of Germany? Yeah, it's interesting, Ralph, because I would say what I did is apples to oranges compared to what the player is doing now. And I don't mean that as the old man get off my lawn, but I went right after we were the worst team at the 1998 World Cup. I became the first American to ever win a bronze boot in a FIFA event. I go over to 1860. Martin Max, Tomas Hosler, I'm shining their shoes. I'm shining their boots. I lead the reserve team in goals for the first six months. I don't get a sniff with the first team. I'm told you're American. You don't have any idea tactically how to play the game, and you won't be ready until you're 23, 24. Well, I was 18. So then I was like, hold on. I made a mistake here. My other option was to go to Bronby. Would that have been better? I don't know. Frankie Haydick was the best player in the 98 World Cup for the United States. He went to Bayer Leverkusen, and he's playing a division below me in the fourth division. Landon Donovan goes to Bayer Leverkusen. He's playing in the fourth division. I'm playing in the third. Corey Gibbs shows up. Steve Trondolo shows up. Trondolo, to his credit, the only American that from day one played. He played. Right. Ralph, Ray, the American player now is not dealing with that. He's not. Now, he's dealing with different stuff. For instance, if Pulisic doesn't score a goal four or five games, if Ricardo Pepe doesn't score a goal four or five games, where the Eastern European player in the same role gets a little bit more of a leash, the American doesn't. Weston McKinney has talked about this, right? Right. It, but but they're playing Ralph and Ray. So what I did, I honestly don't give any of these kids advice. I don't because I don't want to cloud them. I want them to be what I was going over there which I thought, you know, chest high, shoulders high. I'm going to dominate this thing. I'm going to get on with this thing. And I did to the best of my ability. Yes, it was the reserve team. But every time my number was called, I averaged a goal and a little more than a goal, a game and a half. And yet Werner Laurent looked at it and was like, you're an American. You, you don't have a shot. And yet Thomas Hostler, who played two World Cups and was a man for Germany 36 at that time, would always look at me and say, don't change. Because you've got something 
in and around that 18 don't change. And then September 11th happened. And I was like, I need to get the hell out of here. This is my chance to use this, get out of here. And I was like, I'm going back to MLS, Ziggy, Ganser, talk to them. We know that story, but these guys are going over in a different world and good for them and good on Christian Pulisic for being a major part of changing that conversation because now it's working. Yep. I agree. I think that 2002 performance by Bruce in the world cup in, uh, and taking Germany to the very end there and in the competition of the World Cup, I think gained some real good USA. It, it did. 2018 killed it though, Ralph. I know. It can right. go up Two and down in a in a cup. Yep. 2018, not qualifying it, changed the mentality. Sorry, the observation of US soccer from the outside, but it did not change the observation of the American player. And I they, those are mutually exclusive. Got it. Because because I've and I was on this on the record in 2017 at MLS Soccer headquarters. Multiple scouts told me there's going to be 50 Christian Polisics in Europe, and they didn't mean it Christian Polisic style player. They meant 50 American players playing at the highest level. And by the way, were they not right? Yep. Less than three years later, you're looking at almost 30. I mean, we got guys playing for Barcelona, Juventus, Chelsea. Uh, Leipzig, like think about the clubs that Americans are contributing at at a regularly high level. It's sure. absurd. Tell our audience about the Think Taylor pledge and what they can do to connect with what you're doing. Uh, it's interesting. Think Taylor pledge comes from the Think Taylor Foundation. Um, my career ended with a nasty concussion in 2008. Uh, I never fully recovered. I still have after uh, effects of that to this day. And yet, um, my girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, helped me understand that maybe the best way to help myself was to help others. So we started a foundation. And right before the pandemic in 2019, we had just over 6 million kids in the United States take the Think Taylor Pledge. The pledge is real simple. I'm trying to change the narrative that there's not enough information and that we need to quit sports in order to save the brains. We can still play sports. We just need to evolve. We need to be better educated, but we need to have accountability. We need to have accountability on our brains as parents and as kids. Can you play the sport of soccer without heading a ball until you're 12? The answer is absolutely 100% unequivocally yes. Can you play tackle football without tackling until you're 14, 15, 16, 17 when your brain's fully developed? The answer is unequivocally yes. And yet the power brokers, the decision makers in our country are scared about the connotation that if we change, it's going to take away sports. I want kids to play sports as much as anyone, but we need the kids to be educated. And Ralph and Ray, I did this pledge. I pledged to be educated. I pledged to be honest, and I pledged to be supportive. Three words, educated, take ownership of your brain. Honest, if you are educated, you will be honest with your parents, teachers, coaches, and teammates. If you don't feel right, and supportive because mental health is a massive impact of what concussions can do to you. So we need to change that. When I did that and I got the parents out of the way and the older generations out of the way, my money is five, 10 years from now, we're going to be making better decisions because I'm going directly to the kids, both boys and girls using the sport of soccer and its resources. And that's what we did with the Think Taylor Pledge. And that's what we're doing with the Think Taylor Foundation. How can the audience connect with you? How can they get information on it? Well, once you turn on ESPN and you see me, you can hit mute, then go to the internet uh, and uh, go to me on Twitter and Instagram at Taylor Twelman. 
uh, thinktaylor.org. You can find information uh, on that. Uh, but most importantly, just um, changing the narrative that concussions isn't going to ruin sports. We're going to evolve and use it as a vehicle to be better educated and preserve our one brain. Thanks for listening for the love of the game. If you like this show, please give us a rating and a review. Share this with all the social medias and tell your friends. This podcast was produced by Earfluence, and I'm Ralph Perez. And I'm Ray Reed, and we'll talk to you again soon on For the Love of the Game.